The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Kelly Tappenden. She is a professor of nutrition and gastrointestinal physiology at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I heard Dr. Tappenden speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting in Houston last fall, and I was so impressed with her work describing the human microbiome and how it relates specifically to autoimmune diseases. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Tappenden. Thanks for having me, Melinda. Well, your presentation in Houston was so remarkable, and I felt like more of our listeners would be interested in knowing how the role of their guts in their particular health. So first, let's start out just describing a little bit about yourself. How did you get into this field of looking at the gastrointestinal tract? Thanks. Well, you know, I came to the the interest of the gastrointestinal tract very early in my life in that my mother is a gastroenterologist. Now, as a teenager, my parents wanted me to go to medical school, and uh, I wanted to be nothing like my mother. I wanted to forge my own path, and I went into dietetics, became a nutrition expert, and in graduate school, as as uh, fate would have it, I think I felt most comfortable in the area of the gut, having been exposed to it so much. And, you know, as it turns out, I, I think my parents have come around to see, as a nutritionist, studying the, the gut, I can have a great impact. Well, it seems to me that this is the new frontier in both nutrition and medicine. And I just want to let our listeners know that your session was at 8 a.m. in the morning and this huge auditorium was filled to the brink. I think it might have been standing room only because everyone knows that this is really the wave of the future in understanding how to be well, and maybe explain some of our illnesses. So let's talk a little bit about the human microbiome. What is it? Great question. And, you know, there is such a strong interest right now in the microbiome, but there's been benefits that have been known for well over 100 years uh, with regard to these bacteria that are living in our gut. You know, there's one single cell of epithelium. So there's a single layer of intestinal cells that separate the inside of our bodies from the outside environment. And the microbes in that outside environment have such an important role, not only in in providing danger if they're the wrong kind, but also protecting us, priming our immune system, giving us fuels that our intestine and body needs. So it's pretty important. Now, what we know is that this is a dynamic teeming ecosystem. It differs along the gastrointestinal tract, so from the inside, the lumen of the intestine, right over to the, the epithelial cells that, that belong to us, and from person to person. It develops due to genetics, environment, diet, disease. There are more microbe cells within our gut than we have human cells within our body. So it's 
it's a vast population. In fact, about up to 50% of the volume of our, our colon, the contents in the colon, is in fact microbes. Wow. And I think I read where the sum of these microbes weigh about three pounds, which is about the same weight as our brain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what's being recognized is that they have very important metabolic functions, digestive functions. There's vitamin production. They metabolize carcinogens. They ferment fibers to, to short-chain fatty acids. Uh, they also communicate with our brain. There's an important neuronal development and a, a brain-gut access that's being discovered that works with motility within our gut that is even being linked to anxiety behavior. Mm. The immune side, they prevent pathogenic infections. So something something that is going to make us sick, it, the, the bacteria will they colonize and set up shop and prevent other bacteria that we don't want from, from colonizing. Uh, and they are important for developing our immune system. We need to look at it as an organ. Mm-hmm. There's very important functions. Well, I know that your particular presentation at the Dietetic Association meeting focused on autoimmune diseases, and I want to get there. But I want to focus on the microbiome for just a moment more so that our listeners can understand how these microbes become established in the gut to begin with. And part of your presentation dealt with birth and even before birth, the in utero environment. So in utero, we are consuming amniotic fluid. And I believe you spoke about research where animals were prevented from swallowing that amniotic fluid and their gut microbial populations differed from those animals that were allowed to swallow the fluid. That's absolutely right. You know, for for years we've known that the microbiota will develop throughout life. The newborn and the early childhood, the adult and the elderly have very different microbes. And that that mode of, of delivery made a big difference. So a vaginally delivered infant had a different microbiota than, than one divide, derived by cesarean section. But what we didn't appreciate is this in vitro or in vivo impact on the microbes within a human infant. So yes, swallowing of amniotic fluid has been shown to have a big impact on gut development. But you know, there's there's some new research that's making us look differently at the the mode of delivery. And so it seems that it's not just the environmental microbes that are colonizing colonizing the baby's gut. And so the old hypothesis was that there was vaginal microbes versus an operating room microbes that were were the first colonized organisms for the baby's gut. But there's recently some work that's come out that shows that actually microbes from the mother's intestine will be presented to the mammary gland and incorporated into the human milk. And so when a baby is breastfed, we know that makes very big differences compared to a baby who's formula-fed. They have a much much more stable, healthy type of microbiota. But even if the, the breast milk microbiome will differ if that mother has had a cesarean section versus a vaginal delivery. And so for moms who have gone through a labor, they will have a leakier gut that leads to more microbes within their breast milk. And so you could have that vaginal delivery and have the, the, the rich breast milk with microbes, or you can have a 
labor followed by an unscheduled C-section and still have then that breast milk that imparts these advantages to the baby. It's when it's a planned elective cesarean section and there's no laboring, no stress to the mother, and no signal for those bacteria to now go to the mammary gland and populate the milk that the infants are missing that. So the story is really evolving far far um, differently from what we would have originally hypothesized. We are miracles, are we not? Absolutely. This is just so exciting to hear or learn about all the different pieces in our development. So great, you've given us a good picture of how we are brought into the world and how we are more likely to have a better microbial population if we go through a vaginal delivery and we are breastfed. Now, let's talk about the increase in autoimmune diseases that we're seeing internationally. I I thought that was very interesting. You know, you showed not only the U.S. data, but also internationally we're seeing increases in autoimmune diseases. And we should probably start by saying, you know, what kind of diseases fall under the umbrella of autoimmune diseases? Yeah, you know, we are seeing an increase in the number of autoimmune diseases currently They are the second leading cause of chronic illness in the U.S. and the leading cause of morbidity in females. So it's a very big problem for us as a population and internationally also, as you mentioned. It's hard to know exactly what the cost is on our healthcare system, but in 2001, the estimated treatment for autoimmune diseases exceeded $100 billion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's, it's certainly, certainly a very big problem that we have to face. With regard to what are the different kinds, you know, virtually every, every organ system within our body can be impacted. The, the organs impacted are vast and varied. There are over 100 types of different autoimmune diseases that the diagnoses exist for. So it can be pretty extreme. Some of the more common ones are things like psoriasis, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. Lupus, of course, is another one that people will know about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what the problem is, is the ability of the immune system to identify foreign versus self. And so the immune system, the cells that would normally be be, uh, killed if they identified self because we don't want our cells, our immune cells, to attach, attack our own body, there's a problem and those aren't sifted out of the system and so then they exist, they proliferate and they can damage our own organs. All right, so we've got a situation where we have an increase in autoimmune diseases. They require a large investment in our healthcare dollars. Why do you think we're seeing this rise? You know, there's a few different hypotheses as to why that is. We know that There's fairly good understanding of what's happening at the cellular level and the different immune uh, responses that are leading to the autoimmunity. There's also some thoughts about the hygiene hypothesis, and because we're living such clean lives that we may be more susceptible to have an inappropriate response to various various stimuli within our environment. Um, There are genetic issues uh, that are, are with this, 
Um, it's, it's very interesting to try and understand. We may be diagnosing more than we, we were at one point, but family history, environment, racial, ethnic background, all of these things factor into why incidence is on the rise. You know, the other thing is that women, there's three women for every one male diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. And women of childbearing age are uh, often most susceptible. And I think that that might be due to some estrogen responses, but it's quite an interesting problem. Right. So in connecting these dots between our microorganisms in our gut and these specific autoimmune diseases, who was the first person that really looked at that maybe there could be a connection, and how was it proven? Was it, did people have endoscopes put down their their intestines to look, to see what was growing in there? Is it simply looking at a fecal sample? How do we connect those dots between gut bacteria and specific illnesses? Uh, well, this is a good question. And, and, you know, it wasn't originally something that was described with endoscopy because this was described well over a hundred years ago. It was a German bacteriologist and immunologist named Paul Ehrlich who actually won the 1908 Nobel Prize uh, for medicine for his contributions to immunology. And so what he did was describe the bodies, he called it an innate aversion, so an innate aversion for one's own self and um, the immunological self-destruction that followed it. And it was originally called horror autotoxicus. Horror autotoxicus. One, the horror of a, of a toxic response to one's own self. Um, so it's basically an attack of, on oneself by their immune system. With regard to the intestine and why there have been links to that, you know, we know that babies, if we go back to how the, the, the microbiota develops, Babies who have, who are born by cesarean have a 23% higher risk of developing type 1 diabetes uh, than those who are vaginally born. So some of the things that coincide with the microbiota developing in a healthy way are associated with some of these autoimmune diseases and increased prevalence. Breastfeeding also is protective against type 1 diabetes and we have quite a bit of reasonable literature showing that. You know, maybe because of introduction of food, antigens, or, or, um, you know, other, other things, benefits of the breast milk. But it, it's, there's lots of data showing that breastfeeding is associated with a decreased risk of diabetes. Mm-hmm. And when we, we look at autoimmune, children with autoimmune disease, they have a different microbiota composition in their feces than do other children who are healthy but matched for age and gender and early feeding history and, and other factors. And so we know that there's differences between kids with autoimmune disease versus their healthy counterparts. Now, that's clearly an association and, and doesn't mean that those those problems developed it. Uh, but there's also data then showing if we are to try and change the microbiota, via nutrients or probiotics, that this can result in beneficial changes. Now, a lot of this is early work that's being done in rodent models, but it really does provoke the question. If if there's an alteration in the microbiota that's resulting in some of these, these issues, can we go ahead and use nutrition or probiotics to shift 
that population to a more healthy microbiota and infer advantages to these kids. So like I said, there's some some nice animal work that's being done. And there's also a study that's being uh, uh, started in, in children. It's in Swin- uh, Sweden and Finland, and it's called the PRODIA trial, PRO, P-R-O-D-I-A. And what they've done is they've taken 1,200 newborn infants that were born about 10 years ago now. They were genetically screened for their, their risk for type 1 diabetes, and they were randomized to receive a probiotic or a placebo during their first six months of life. And so now they're following them out prospectively to see if that's going to change the incidence of type 1 diabetes. And I, I just can't wait for the, the data to be published on this. It should be very interesting to see if a real early systematic attempt to try and alter the microbiota will alter disease incidence. Well, and we can give listeners just a little tease of what we might expect because you presented data on animal. The animal research shows that introducing those, I guess, was it, did you say prebiotic or probiotic? Probiotic. Introducing. Is where that research is right now. Yes, and introducing that probiotic did show a positive effect for the animals, so we are very hopeful that we can have an impact. I need to take one break and let our listeners know that we are speaking with Dr. Kelly Tappenden. She is a professor of nutrition and gastrointestinal physiology. She's also a fellow registered dietitian, and she conducts her research at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Tappenden, let's talk a little bit about Well, I've got two burning questions that I want to get to. One, of course, has to do with how do we nourish those microorganisms and keep them well and healthy in our guts after we're born. But the other one is with regard to the research in looking at the microorganisms in the fecal material. And I would think that you'd have to take multiple samples because there would be variations in the in the microbes based on diet or stress or uh, current health state. So tell me how that works in terms of the research specifically. This is a great question and some something that I think about a lot, actually, because most of the human research that we have does analyze the microbes that are present in feces. Now, as one develops their, their profile or the community of microbes that exists within their colon or their feces is fairly stable, and so it doesn't shift a lot unless there are big changes like antibiotic use, for example. Right. But the other thing, so so frequent sampling, we want to be able to look at diet over time and see how there shifts, but, you know, we don't have to worry about being too frequent in that regard. What does matter, though, is the fact that we know that the microbes that are in the lumen um, or the inside of our intestine and flowing through the intestinal tract are very different than those that are, in fact, attached and adherent to the to our own epithelial cells, to the inside of our intestine. And it might be those microbes that have the biggest effect on human health. And so that's something that, that I and I think my fellow scientists worry about when we're sampling from from fecal matter as, you know, is, is we do that for obvious reasons, given the invasiveness of getting a sample higher up in the intestine, um, and, and we would have to do an intestinal biopsy to actually get those that are attached to the mucosa. How, 
how similar are those? And, and there's some work that's that's being done to show that there there are some similarities. There are certainly some differences too. So whenever we're looking at these these human trials, looking at samples from from feces, we really need to keep that in mind, and and then inform our knowledge from by some of the animal work that's being done that that gives us perhaps more of a comprehensive picture. But recognizing that that those animal species have a different community population than than we as humans do. Mm-hmm. It's a very now, complex question that you've posed. Well, you know, you have to wonder, especially because add to that mix of uncertainty or variables, the issue of the changing microbiota as we age. So during infancy, I mean, I remember in your presentation, you even described how the breast milk changes, which introduces different nutrients into the gut, which will influence the microorganisms living there. And then as we go through life, so the microorganisms living in our guts may be totally different, I'm assuming, when we're 10 versus when we're 50 or 60. Yeah, we know that that life cycle really does have a big impact on the microbiota. And, you know, there's strong links to then susceptibility or associations to various diseases that we might have at various times. Uh, and so the elderly have a substantially different gut community than do younger adults. And and you're right, the human milk will change over the period of lactation in response to the age of the infant, the environmental triggers that the mother is exposed to, and, you know, even due to the, the mother's physical state. So if a, an obese woman will have a different microbial pattern within her breast milk, than will a lean a lean mother. So there's lots of different factors that are going into this that you know are just really being described now. Yeah, I always tell people that we're really this is very exciting research, but we're just really looking at the tip of the iceberg. So I want to thank people like you and your your colleagues who are doing this research to help help us understand better how we can be healthier. And that leads us to my next question, which is how we nourish ourselves to create a more favorable environment to reduce our risk for chronic diseases uh, as well as the autoimmune diseases. So with regard to diet and nourishing our guts well, there are pre and probiotics certainly in foods. Do you want to talk a little bit about the differences between pre and probiotics and maybe what an ideal diet would be for gut health? Absolutely. As consumers, there's so much of an emphasis on probiotics, these live bacteria that we can consume on, with the concept that they will then reside in our gut. Others may have heard of the term prebiotics. So pro, P-R-O-biotics is the live bacteria. P-R-E biotics is things like dietary fiber and food stuff that we can consume that will be a fuel or food for that bacteria. So it gives the bacteria something to chew on and and help them thrive. Now, I am a big proponent of prebiotics. Like I said, many of the dietary fibers that we consume in our diet contain prebiotics. There's several different kinds. Um, In fact, breast milk. We talked earlier that breast milk is, is advantageous for the humans or for the infant's microbiota. We 
we know that to be true because breast milk has a lot of prebiotics in it that produce and is thought to be the reason why it's so beneficial for the microbes within the baby's gut. As adults, we can consume fruits and vegetables and, and this mixed mixed fiber source within our, our a healthy diet and provide prebiotics that way. Now, one of the reasons I like prebiotics, probiotics certainly have their role in, in instances where we have great data to support their use. I would make the recommendation for a specific strain and a specific indication. But prebiotics, this dietary fiber fuel for the bacteria, they help support that healthy environment. And they, the data seems to give us a hypothesis that they might be longer lasting than a probiotic. You know, probiotics, where they've been effective, they've been effective while the person is consuming them. And once they stop consuming it, that bacteria doesn't necessarily stay in their colon. It's excreted and and that population is gone. Prebiotics, that provides a fuel to help that, that colony or that community develop on its own and and the hypothesis is that it might be a little more more stable and longer lasting. Uh, so I think that, as I said, probiotics certainly have their role with certain indications, specific probiotics for specific problems, but prebiotics are something that I think we can all benefit from. Mm-hmm. And so getting back to this perspective of looking at the changes over time in the incidence of autoimmune disease, one has to wonder what kind of role our highly processed diet plays. Because when you're describing the kinds of foods that contain prebiotics, the first thing that comes to my mind is whole, minimally processed foods that have a lot of those fibers and nutrients. And the processed diet really has uh, macronutrients, but not much else. You're absolutely right, and that's one of the recommendations, you know, that we have for healthy Americans is to be consuming more fruits and vegetables and whole, you know, unrefined foods, and that certainly is going to be better for the microbes in our gut, too. There's lots of reasons why we want to get away from those processed foods, and and this is just one of them. Well, Dr. Tappeton, our time is almost up, and I want to give you a chance in a minute or so that we have left to just share anything with our listeners that you'd like to leave them with. I really want to help leave our listeners with the concept that these bacteria in our intestine uh, certainly are our friends and they are a big part of contributing to health, health of, of our, our, ourselves and other humans. We need to do everything we can to help foster them. And, and it's pretty easy to do. We can do this with diet. Um, and so that's where a healthy whole food diet is really what we're going to want to be emphasizing. Um, and, you know, time will tell whether or not this is going to prevent and not just be associated, but prevent some of these autoimmune diseases and other, other diseases that the microbes have been associated with. But, you know, regardless of how that work turns out, there's lots of reasons why we want to be emphasizing that, that whole food type of, of diet and, um, this may be one of, an additional reason that we can benefit. 
Well, Dr. Tabenton, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I know you're very busy speaking all over the country about your research. We've been speaking with Dr. Kelly Tappenden. She is a professor of nutrition and gastrointestinal physiology at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I heard her speak to a packed room of registered dietitians at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting in Houston last fall. I want to thank you for your research, for helping us be a healthier population. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hamelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you again, Dr. Tappenton, for carving out time to be my guest. My pleasure. Thanks to you. Thanks to you.